Hey, is this Coach Mac? Yeah, it is. All right. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing all right. So thank you for doing this. I think that we could actually do some, uh, have a pretty good conversation. Well, uh, I'll do my part. This should go well. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So uh, this is another episode of Better, Worse, or the Same, and I'm your host, Jason Meckenbeyer. Today on the show, we have uh, Dave McCarney, also known as Coach Mac. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to bring you on because a friend of mine had told me a, a lot about your background and how it was very deep in coaching and very deep in education. And I think that you actually had some have some pretty interesting stories um, about your background, but you know, for the listeners, if you could give a brief uh, synopsis of what what you did and your career and uh, different things that you've done. Uh, sure. I, I started in 1972 as a sixth grade classroom teacher at a Catholic school in Ann Arbor, and then I I was coaching. I, I spent three years as the director of Little League Baseball. Uh, in Ann Arbor, and I was coaching football at um, uh, Ann Arbor St. Thomas, and I I had some success, got along with the, the administration, and progressed quickly into head coach at, a, I think, a relatively early age. So I was head varsity football coach at 24 years old. Uh, as I got through my first five years as head coach, I had some success. And uh, I got interviews at other public schools, and I didn't have a secondary certification. So I didn't get the jobs that I could have had at very good schools um, and very good football schools. So I went back to school and started a master's degree. I I became head coach at a school, had some success there quickly, and got offered a college job at Michigan Tech University. And that was fun, and I loved the school. I loved the kids, and it was so. The, I, I started progressing in college football, and made it to Kent State University, and then things kind of went sideways. Not with me, but the head coach in a college program. If he gets fired, everybody else gets, depending on your contract. But back in 1980, the early 80s, the assistant coaches got 90 days pay, and you were you know, had to find yourself a job. So at that point, my dream was to be a college coach, but I didn't like everything that went along with it. So I went back to high school. In Belleville, I think this is somewhat unique. I was head varsity coach in football, but I also, over the next 18 years, became the head varsity coach in five other sports. I got out of football, got tired of the, at that point, there were, everybody thought they were an NFL player and all the parents were hard to get along with because they thought every kid should get a scholarship. And I was in college, and I understand that it's like 2% of the kids that played high school football got a full ride. And the parents just, I just, you know, thought they were so unrealistic that I, I started coaching sports that there wasn't as much interference with. I was the head tennis coach, the head golf coach, I was the head volleyball coach, and I was the head track coach when I uh, uh, wanted to be an athletic director. So... I left Belleville to become an athletic director at another Class A high school, Downriver, Detroit. And then I became a principal of a K-8 Catholic school in Downriver in Wyandotte, Michigan. So that's 41 years in a nutshell. Yeah. So I remember when we were trying to set up this podcast and you'd mentioned Coach Mack. Um, yeah. And I think that it was clear to me that that it, at one point in your career, in your 30 years, 40 years uh, teaching and coaching, there was a switch that occurred where you stopped being Dave McCarney, the teacher who also coaches. And I can imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I can imagine you became Coach McCarney. You you start, started seeing your identity as a coach, not just a career as a coach. Yes. It was a, it was, it was a transition from... Uh, the different sports, I, I never coached women's sports until I, I became the head, I was the head boys tennis coach. I became the girls head coach and I saw myself that it was the best change I could have made. 
for some reason, I really needed that change and needed the different perspective from the girls' side. So from a mental health standpoint, as a, as a person and as a coach, uh, that saved my coaching career. Now, that may sound like kind of a strong statement, but the boys had become so boisterous, talking too much, talk too much trash, talk too much. It just wasn't my style. I was more of the, let's keep our mouth shut and beat people, and then they'll respect us afterwards. Yeah. It seems that we've had a uh, kind of an emphasis on experts um, for yes. things and, and, and almost a over... Uh, an overemphasis on educational pedigree and background. And it seems that your success in coaching uh, is more based on, hey, you have to learn the fundamentals. And these fundamental skills, whether you learned them in teaching or coaching football or whatever it was, once you had these basic skills down, you could transfer these skills to other topics and other things. And it seemed that these, I mean, it, to me, it seems like these skills that you had were very transferable across multiple different dimensions. You're, you're 100% right, Jason, and I'll give you two other examples. One of the girls on the volleyball team was my number one tennis player. So she was happy to see me as the coach. Mm-hmm. Well, in the district finals, she, she didn't start, but we, we had a system and serving in tennis where we divided the court up that we were serving into into three sections and we called it ABC serve it to the alley serve it to the body serve it to the center line and I transferred that to volleyball and I and I we were in a tight game and I looked at her and I said I need you to serve the, the person that was serving was he said wasn't a good server and I said go in for her serve and I said, just bounce it three times and say the number of the girl you're going to serve it to and do it. And uh, she did it. I mean, it, and it would transfer. She wasn't a great volleyball player, but she was confident enough in a very tough situation to go in and execute. And, you know, that 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 works. And she, she ended up being on the rowing team at Michigan State in the same thing. She just had enough confidence in herself that I think – she got that from from working with a coach that's very positive and very uh, systematic about what you need to do. I'm not a rah-rah guy. I just am a systematic, here's the thing that I think works, and I think if you do this and you do it with a purpose, you'll, you'll, it'll, it'll do, serve you well. So, yeah, and, and I see them outside after they graduate from college and they're doing well two or three of the different athletes that, that I kind of uh, follow. And, I, and, I, and it does, I see those characteristics that they had that I think I helped develop out of and pull out of them. Now, yes. some of it I think is, because um, you described, you know, serving, taking a skill in tennis and then transferring it to volleyball. But what were some of the skills that you found Kind of the interpersonal skills. How how did you find the ability to motivate athletes to to say, "Look, you're going to do what I'm going to tell you to do. Let's let's go in this direction." What what were some of those things that you found? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I have a specific answer for that. But I I, I had a volleyball player that was a senior, and she was all league setter. And setting is kind of unique, but this girl was an all-state softball player, and she she list, played volleyball, I guess, for something to do in the winter. And she was kind of heavy set, so she it served her well as catcher. But in volleyball, she just was smart and always anticipated properly. And um, uh, I didn't try to tell her. To, I said, "Do do your thing." And when she, I didn't overcoach her. To your other point. Mm-hmm. I didn't know enough. I didn't know enough to overcoach her, and it really helped because uh, she laughingly said, at "A couple practices, I'm going to go over here. I got some algebra to do. Is that all right?" And I said, "Yeah, it's fine." <laughs> I mean, for three years she's been doing this. She knows what she's doing. She's going to sure. do it. She's going to do what she do what she does best. And I always said, "Practice what you know how to do." 
don't practice what you don't know how to do. And that's the opposite of what most coaches say. And I'd say, you know, just do some things never go out of style. The thing the, that that um, dink that you do so well, keep doing it. I mean, you don't need to work on it. Just keep doing it. And she had a feel for the game. Every sport, like when I was recruiting in college football, players had on the football field, high school players, would jump out at you because they had a nose for the ball, a defensive player. Now, I didn't care what his size was at, at Michigan Tech. I, I needed a smart, intelligent guy that played within the system and was where he's supposed to be and wasn't, wasn't a coward. Well, these girls were the same way. They kind of responded to that where I didn't overcoach them. They played AAU volleyball. In your area, there's a program that my granddaughter played in called the Dead Frogs. It was formed by some legendary coach from Port Eat Central. And it's a good program, but it's geared toward making 7th and 8th graders volleyball phenoms. And I think that's wrong. I went to some of the games, and I think you let them play. You don't know in 7th and 8th grade who's going to be good and who's not. Now, there's some that do jump out, and that's fine. They're, that's always going to be the case. But there's some that develop over two or three years, and they're an asset to the team, whether they start or come off the bench. Uh, so that's yeah. Kind of, yeah, it's kind of how I approached everything. Simple is better. Some things never go out of style. Do what you do best, and we'll be fine. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I mean, um, I know what you're talking about when I was I, I didn't coach or anything, but with my kids, it seems that little league baseball has turned into club baseball and year round baseball, and you're training. And unfortunately, I think what happens is you take these these athletes and you kind of start pigeonholing them and saying you're a baseball player, and you're not only a baseball player, you're a third baseman. And I think that that happens, you know, not only in sports, but but to kind of change gears a little bit, I think that happens in education as well, where we're, we're trying to hyper-specialize people really early on. And um, unfortunately, that takes a very broad, interesting set of skills and hones it so people are very good at one thing, but they can't adapt to a, a diverse setting. So... Talking a little bit about uh, coaching and what makes a good coach, I was curious what your take was because you have a couple different people. You know, you have you have the coaches, you have the school, you have the athletes, but then you also have the fans. You have all these different competing interests. Yes. To be a good coach, are you going to be? A, do you have to be a winning coach? No. My first, my first, uh, at the top of every page when I start a season. I, I want to eliminate chaos and I want to put expectations out to my players. I, I want to eliminate all the noise around and no chaos for the players. I want them to concentrate on what I'm expecting out of them. And I always have a meeting before every practice. doesn't matter what sport I coach. Here's my expectations for today. Now, you know, and I, and I say it in a good way. I don't say it like a, you know, like a tyrant or, a, you know, we, mm -hmm. we did this. Uh, I, I know this. I know in, in tennis, if we use our drop shot and, and uh, uh, drop shot lobs effectively, it's going to be a shot that we can go to when we need to every week. So that's that, that's what our, our goal today is. And I, so I spell it out every, you know, every practice for every sport. And, and winning, did you find, though, that if you focused on, hey, these are our expectations, we're going to get rid of the chaos, as you said, did you find that the wins would start coming in? Yes. And why, why is that? Do you because if, that, if it were that simple, then I would think that most coaches would say, oh, we're just going to do this. I mean, why is it that you have some coaches who are very good and some coaches who just can't put together a good program? At every level that I coached, the best coaches were the guys that were running the simplest defenses, the simplest offenses on, in football. In basketball, it was very similar. They stressed um, good man-to-man -man defense, rebound. They always had these little cliches, uh, defense, rebound, run. That's that's our motto. Um, it, you know, in football, 
we're going to uh, defense. We're going to we're going to do the pursuit drill every single day, and nobody's going to score a long touchdown on us. And it was true. I mean, so if you put together the right uh, practice plan and you do it every day, it'll translate into success, and the kids get more confident and they execute. So the the lead, you don't want to. Eliminating chaos also refers to keeping their minds clear and make things simple. That's why I said simple is better. I always kept it. You know, I taught two ways to tackle. You know, a show, right shoulder tackle, left shoulder tackle, and an angle tackle. That's the only thing that could happen in a game. And we worked on it every day in, in half-speed motion. We didn't do it full speed. I didn't believe in beating the kids up. I just We just did it at half-speed, and it... I saw it translate into the game. So once I got an idea or a technique that worked, uh, then we would go to it. You know, and, and some kids would resist that. Like you say, they, there are coaches that want to show you how much they know. So they get a, a 28 to 10 lead, and then they're going to show you how much they know about the passing game. And next thing you know, they're losing 31 to 28 because they went away from what they were doing well that game. Yeah, they wanted to show off. Yes. And in tennis, I always had one kid that really fought me on it. I said, you're trying to, to, to do that first serve so hard that if you hit one out of ten, you're happy with yourself. But you're losing the match. Here's your go-to serve. You're going to hit the spin serve to the guy's body, and he's going to have all kinds of problems with it. Now, if you're ahead 40, love, go ahead and try hitting one down the uh, center line as hard as you can. I don't care, 40, love. So I, it had to be. I had to use the the concepts along with the, the situation that was happening in the contest to make sure that okay, you want to do that, go ahead, but don't do it unless you're at forty love. Yeah. Uh, so so there were things like that that I I kept on track of on top of, but a lot of the coaches that. You're right, Jason, because when I was recruiting recruiting in college, I said, man, all these guys that I meet on the recruiting trail, they're all good coaches. They talk, and they're great on the chalkboard. But when you get in the game, their, their teams sometimes are confused, confused because their chalk talks are so darn complex. Yeah, that the kid's paralyzed. You know, you've heard that term, analysis by paralysis. Well, that happens in sports, football, all the time, especially with defense. I just taught keys and reactions, and this is a very simple thing. Your key is that, and there's your reaction. And once they learn, wow, he's right. That's where they're going. When they do that, when they double team, they're coming here. And I could, I could fill that hole on the runner back. I'll run right into him. Now, so, you talk a little bit about confidence and how – uh, students or, or athletes need to have confidence. And how did you teach that? Because I agree with that. There is something, and you can tell in a game sometimes where all of a sudden you can just feel it. The team, you're like, yeah, they're they're on. That team is on. They are going to just, they're just working it. And the other team, I mean, it could be a close game. The other team is on their back foot and you can sense it. How do you yeah. teach confidence? When you're... Um it starts with practice plan. I had a 40-year reunion with a team um, from from 1976. We were undefeated, and we we um, oh we had a reunion at the high school, uh, and, and we got together the night before. And the running backs kept saying to me, "You knew how to put the puzzle together, and when practice, you constantly said we." I had my game plan. Monday, I was ready. So Monday, I ran the plays I wanted to run on offense. Then I tweaked them on Tuesday. Then I thought by Wednesday, they should be running it properly. And he said, I can remember on Wednesday, he said, run it again. Run it again. That's not right. You're not hitting the hole fast enough. You're not You're not hitting there. Run it again. And he said, then when we got in the game Saturday night and you called that play, we, we, we knew they weren't going to stop it because we knew every situation that could come up and know how to adjust to it. So it was, I, I always felt that the mind had to be in the right place in football. And again, I wasn't yeller and screamer. If I did yell and scream, they would listen because I didn't do it very often. Yeah. 
it's, it's not an effective way to motivate people. Not really. No. Not really. So. With uh, sports, I mean, especially at a high level, uh, I'm talking college now, you have this financial aspect that is a huge part of, of, of college sports and professional sports. Yes. And you have to balance, you have to balance the boosters and you have to balance the team. Um, did you find a big problem when you jumped from high school to college? All of a sudden, this financial component of you got to have a winning team, you got to have this, that made it more difficult to coach. No, and I'll and I'll I'll say that when I went down to Florida from from Kent State, I went to Naples, Florida, to a high school as a head coach, and it was um, the school was new. They were like oh for two and a half years. They never won a game. And they were getting beat badly. And so the same principles that I used, meetings before, here's our expectations, here's our keys and reactions, here's what we're going to do. I, we went five and five that first year because the kids had confidence in what I was telling them. And they started to f- execute on the field. And you can see it happening. Now, the, the money and the pressure, high school – Football in Florida is much more intense than it is in Michigan. They have spring ball in May uh, for high school. So a kid there, football is king. And they they have more practices in May than – they have 15 practices in May, their freshman, junior, sophomore, junior year. So they've actually had almost another complete season by the time they're seniors. And their expectations are big, and their the scholarship um, parents want that scholarship, and there's pressure. There's pressure that goes with that. So it's a constant stream of communication with the parents and the players on what's realistic. With you're not going to go to University of Florida. You're you're five foot eleven, two twenty. You're a good high school player, and at the time, Central Florida was a, a in the eighties was a smaller school. And, you know, that would be a better fit for you. So I constantly had to talk about that. And once the parents understood I wasn't blowing smoke, I was really trying to be uh, fair with them and their kid, their, their child, they, they started to trust me. So that, that's a big part of it is earning the trust. A lot, of, a lot of young coaches, they say, I'm head coach, and when I was athletic director, they'd come up to me and say, uh, you know, the parents are complaining. Can you get them off my back? And I said, you have to earn their trust. You have to earn their respect. That comes with there's something you're doing that they're not happy about because the, the player's going home and and you've got to, you know, earn that respect. The, the respect doesn't come because you got the title of head coach. So there's a lot of communication that has to go on to, to help, you know, the players, the parents, the booster club was raising money for you. Um, and then in, in Florida, there's a lot of pressure to win in high school. Now you say you got to earn their respect. Is it part of the coaching? I can imagine that certain programs and certain, uh, regions of the country have a certain style of play. And yes. did you find that you had to, you know, we take, we play Texas football. I'm a Texas football style coach. We play Michigan football. I'm a, I'm a Michigan. Did you find that, that, that your style could be adaptable or did you find that you had your own unique style? Uh, defensively, the style that you know, the best transfers anywhere. Uh, for example, I, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Bo Schembecker, 5-2 angle slant defense. I learned it. I had tapes that I listened to in my car. I know the ins and outs of it. I know what to adjust to, how to adjust, how to stop certain things. And even though they went, start, school started to play more wide open and started with a run and gun in the 2000s. I mean, in you know, like by 2010 and going forward teams started running more spread offenses i could still adapt that defense to that uh, any offense mm-hmm. now offensively it, it was a little you a little more challenging because um you, you couldn't just run the midwest michigan power i mean they still the michigan run 
wing T a lot on offense. And it's successful, but it's got its limitations. If you get behind, you can't catch up fast. So you have to adjust that way. In Florida, I learned because we had spring ball, I could work on a lot more offense. So when August pre-fall practices started, our offense was way ahead of the defense. And that's the way it is down there. They have much better offensive skill players. And um, and there's speed all over the place down there. Miami and the east side is kind of the speed coast. And then the Panhandle, Orlando, has a combination of speed and power. And the southwest, uh, where I was in Naples on the Gulf Coast, wasn't they never really won on the high level state championships, but they have, they had a lot of good individual players. My my second game in Florida, Deion Sanders was the quarterback at North Fort Myers, and um, he was pretty special. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little bit. There was a guy. There was a guy better than him when he left, and he became a defensive back in the NFL named Richard Fain. So there was just a lot of talent, and that's a different. That's a whole nother thing that you know you've got to with that good of a talent simple is better works even more with them because they they just are so talented you know innately now talking about talent a little bit did you find um that this relationship this linear relationship for you coaching the player did you find that that started coming back where the players were teaching you about things and you you know, what was that process? Um, I think, I think I might've been, uh, probably into my third year before I started paying attention, uh, to a, a couple, I had an all state tight end and he said, coach, I'm sorry. I changed that route. And I said, do, do you hear me complain? You just caught it and ran 47 yards. I, I, I'm not going to complain that you didn't stick to the route. You adjusted to what your linebacker was doing, and that's within the the concept of the play. So I, I, I think I learned early on, which three years in is somewhat early on, to learn that I, I needed to listen to the players. Yeah, and kind of balance it. Balance it, yes. That's the right word. Yes. Yep. What were some of the biggest positive changes that occurred in athletics from when you started coaching in the uh, 70s to when you finished coaching? Well, if, if the parents were smart about the off-season um, developmental programs they got their son or daughter into, that would really work well. In other words, in the 70s, there weren't the softball, baseball um, places to go to where you could hit inside and get hitting instruction, get pitching instruction. There weren't those things. And that's that's better if it's controlled by the parents. Um, and the parents have to be involved. The, the, I think one thing I, I remember there was a softball pitcher that played tennis for me and she was a good tennis player, but softball was going to be her thing in college. And they, they did a good job with her of letting her go to someplace in the winter time to develop, but they kept it. Um, uh, they didn't burn her out mm -hmm. and she had a good experience. I think that's a big role that the parents have because that I, I, I don't pay for that as the head coach. I can suggest things to them. There's a lot of know-it-all head coaches that think they, they what they say is, you know, going to help. But for the most part, I think the parents and the coach have to have a plan together, and then the parents ultimately have to know the limitations of their son or daughter. And then in baseball and softball, there's opportunities out there to get better. Um, you just have to use them in the right way take things don't spend a, an exorbitant amount of money to learn three things that are going to help you you know yeah get the basics yeah. down first and you can get them down well yeah. and yes. then start spending money yep 
So you mentioned a little bit of these programs in the summertime um, and these secondary, you know, or wintertime programs, whatever it may be. Could one argue that 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 sports is becoming a game of who has the most money and the most time to dedicate to it? Are we moving into an era where, where unfortunately, the kids who don't have the funds to do these secondary programs just can't compete? Um, I, you know, it's an interesting question. I would like to say that the talent will come to the top and then that, and that college coaches or can, can see that talent and will recruit it and that you can't buy your way to a scholarship. Uh, there's people that spend too much money on seventh and eighth grade volleyball, AAU, and it doesn't translate into anything. They can make the freshman team and get cut on the JV team, and they've spent thousands of dollars traveling all over Indiana, Ohio, and Western Michigan, and their daughter got better, but it doesn't mean that she's going to get a scholarship anywhere. Mm-hmm. You. You, you have to do what you're doing because this, the player loves it and wants to do it. Your son or daughter is having fun and uh, it, it's not going to translate necessarily. Too many things come up. I, my, my own stepdaughter was very good in softball. She blew out her knee in basketball her junior year. So that just didn't, she never, you know, mm-hmm. played in college. And, you know, things can happen. Injuries. Uh, just burnout, burnout's a, a real, you know, serious thing. But the thing that, that always bothered me, uh, Jason, in high school was let, let the kid play three sports if they want to play three sports. Don't specialize them. There's value in playing all the sports and being with your friends. The number one thing, and when I was an athletic director, the state of Michigan came out with a survey, why do you play sports? number one thing that the kids answered was I want to play with my friends second thing was I want to have fun third thing was uh, scholarship or thinking about college but I want to be with my friends I want to have fun and they didn't talk about winning at all they talked about you know those other things that they wanted to have good experiences and the, the coaches need to you know pay attention to that now, do you think a little bit that we've kind of lost sight of that recently? Um, oh, yeah. I, I feel like any more, it's scholarship. And I, and I think people have this unrealistic expectation that, you know, my kid's going to go pro. And it's like, you know, they're not. No. <laughs> Spend that money on something else. But it's, I, 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 my stepdaughter had a daughter that was in the volleyball program I told you about. And she, she, was a, she had a good time. She was a better than average player but it just never worked out and um, yeah the, the expectations there's two times two kinds of expectations I want you to play the sports so you can get a college scholarship because I hear there's a lot of women's scholarships in volleyball I hear there's a lot which there isn't I hear there's a lot of golf women's scholarships which there kind of is mm-hmm. but if you go, but if you I talked to the Penn State as my mother-in-law lives in State College I went and talked to the women's Penn State golf coach about 10 years ago, and I said, I have a really good golfer. She's all state. She was a state runner-up, blah, blah, blah. And she says, well, I've already recruited my team. I don't have any openings until – and she named a date that was like four years of going forward. It, it's really difficult, and they parents don't understand it, how to get a scholarship at a Division One school. Then Division Two competition is much better than people give it credit for mm-hmm. And then NAIA is a is a, a form of uh, Division three, but they they find ways to get uh, money to people. So I had a girl that you know it's cost twenty three thousand dollars a year to go to the school, but they found thirteen thousand, so now it's down to ten thousand, and she's playing golf for them. And it's really a glorified high school golf team, but the school is good, so. Take advantage of that if you still want to play. Sure, sure. But the the, the no, you're you're if you're pushing your son or daughter, it's totally unrealistic because it's the top you know two percent that get those scholarships, and it's it's pretty obvious anybody can recruit the 
five-star athletes. I always, at Kent State, I had to look at the two-star, the one-star, and the people that I think were just, their better days were ahead of them. And I could, you could find those and take a chance on them. But that was a uh, kind of a complicated um, process, too. What has changed? Uh, what, it, what has been one of the most negative changes that you saw um, over your career in sports that you kind of feel like we, we kind of lost something? Well, in, in high school here in Michigan, uh, school of choice has created a, a negative in that these parents and players are going to schools and there's no community pride in some of the programs right now mm-hmm. because they're not living here. They're just coming in and I'm talking about where I live. I've won two state championships in football the last two years and I, it's not well attended and it's not, there's not a lot of community pride in it. You won't see the signs downtown here when they're in the final game that you would see in um, Gull Lake or uh, I, I, I actually coached and taught Kingston, Michigan, mm-hmm. and they had my oldest son played on their basketball team. We were in the quarterfinals a ton. You've heard that the town shut down. Everybody was at the game. Everybody had a lot of pride in that team, and everybody knew everybody. That's not the case here, and School of Choice has brought that on. It's created these all-star teams, and I half expect Michigan high school sports to go to some sort of regional almost like AAU teams where you just pick up different kids from different school districts and that's your team. Yeah. 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 That's, that's actually a really interesting uh, observation. And I didn't even think of that, but that's, that's true. You develop a certain sense of community around a team and it, you can lose that. Yes. You can lose that. Well, I, I, I want to bring you back on the show. I think, that, I think that we've hit a number of different topics, but I think that we could talk about coaching for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, and, I, yeah, there's so much we could talk about. And, and there is a lot of stress now with kids that the parents feel and the kids feel that, you know, I'm t- I, I, I see kids, I see um, Olympic athletes on TV saying, they, what do they call it? That um, there was a couple of gymnasts, and one girl that was a, such a great gymnast, and she had to take a time off because of mental. Oh, Simone uh, Simone yeah. Biles. Yeah. Yeah. What, what did they call that? PTSD or something? I don't. I don't remember what they but called it with her. There, there are kids, and I, I'm not being. I'm trying not to be harsh about this, mm-hmm. but there are kids that just don't function under too much pressure, and. Um, that's big time pressure. And I had kids in high school that I had to say, this is just another game. Come on, Rick, this is another game. You're going to do the same thing. And it's 90% mental. We've taught you everything. You've done everything in the drills during practice. So when you go out there, have fun, man, turn it loose. And as long as my attitude is the same way, I learned this lesson when I was coaching golf, I got mad because we worked on something and they wouldn't execute it. And then I found out it just takes time. You can't put pressure on somebody hitting a chip shot in golf because their arms get tight, they get tense, and they try too hard. Mm-hmm. And that was something I, I learned um, and had to tone, tone it down, you know? Because it wasn't anger, it was just like, hey, I've seen you do this 20 times. What, what's going on here? That's, and I presented it the wrong way. Yeah. I, I remember I was, um, I had got pulled for pole vault and we went down to districts and I'd done very well. I was a freshman and I did very well in the JV pole vault championships or the pole vault uh, competitions, the track and field events. But it's true, on that different stage, I flopped and I, I yeah. couldn't figure it out. And what was what was so hard about it was that my coach at the time just didn't talk to me the rest of the day. Yep. He, I was, I was done. And that was the last year I did pole vault. I mean, it burned me. I mean, it just yep. messed it up. Here's, here's one more small story. I'm in seventh grade. I'm the starting defensive tackle for my team. And the first two plays I remember vividly because they trapped me. 
and the, the the team ran two plays, scored a touchdown. Coach took me out. I never played again that year, and I, and he never told me what I did wrong. Yeah. So, so I remember that from seventh grade to the point when I was high school varsity coach, I always went over everything that I expected him to do. But here's how you do it, and here's how you stop it. I I can't. You can't get mad at somebody if they don't. If you're not explaining it properly, how how you need how, how can I help you do this better? Okay, let's walk through it. Let's step through. And we were good at stopping the trap. Every team I had because that one thing stuck with me from seventh grade, and I carried over to me as a coach. Now, do you think that part of your um, ability to 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 teach that to your to your athletes and to remember that lesson was because of your training as an elementary school teacher and you knew hey you may not see it as a big deal but these kids will yes. really see it as a big deal yep here's an, here's another small thing i i was in in sixth grade you pretty much teach all subjects right mm-hmm. so I, i'm math not my strength but i was a good sixth grade math teacher to the point of the director of where he was the head of the payroll department for Ann Arbor Public Schools. His son was in my class in the first parent-teacher conference. He, he complimented me on the fact that his kid really had these concepts that were basic fundamental things he needed to know and get down. And I wouldn't let him, I wouldn't go, let him go further until I knew he had them. And that's the same, same thing. I didn't. Nobody told me why I why I screwed up on that trap play. Yeah. Tell me so I can fix it, and I'll do it. I'm, I got the ability to do it. I just don't know how to do it until you tell me. And in math, I was uh, labeled a good math teacher in sixth grade because I pounded the fundamentals and drilled. And that's football practice. Football. I mean, coaching is. You remember they had a concept called open classroom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I was doing open classroom in 1970s with football. I mean, that's what it is. It's an open classroom. They're building buildings here in Ypsilanti, calling it an open. It was a gigantic uh, program. This is a great school, Artist Elementary School, the open school. Yeah. Well, the concept was I, I did lesson plans for football practice every day with the open concepts, you know. But nobody showed me that, or I had to figure it out and learn it. So, do you think um, talking about how how your your skills as a teacher transferred directly? Yes. Um, are there professional coaches out there, whether they be college, high school? You know, are there higher level coaches out there who don't have that background? Um, or do you think that that background, um, at least in understanding your players' mental uh, yes. approach, that's, is insane? That's a, that's, a, that's a better question than you think. Uh, because there are pro coaches that I, you know, they have all these darn shows now where they, the, um, the show that the Lions are on, Hard Knocks. Mm-hmm. So the Arizona Cardinals coach, I don't know the guy last year. He got fired. But when I watched Hard Knocks and watched how he interacted with his players, he wasn't even comfortable in the meeting room with them. I mean, it sort of shocked me that he could get to that level. But there are guys that they get, and that's not pigeonholed. They get this, uh, they're a phenom. They're, a, they're, a, they're an offensive whiz. They're a quarterback guru. And those labels get him into positions where then they then they finally just they just fall apart. They can't take the pressure. They can't take the the small things. They don't do those small things, Jason. Like you know that the teachers in the classroom do, and that the the good coaches do. Bill Belichick. I've read a number of books on him. He's very fundamental with his defensive strategies. They're they're almost obvious what they're going to do, but they do it so well that there's always a good defense, whether they got Tom Brady or not. That, you know, so there's there's coaches that have paid their dues. I would say if you paid your dues, but there are there are coaches in college now 
and I can name a couple of them, but I, I yeah, yeah, sure. They, 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 they got to be head coaches, and they're young, and they didn't pay their dues. They just gophered their way up to a position, and then right time, right place, and they got um, one of them coached at Michigan as a co-offensive coordinator. Since he left Michigan, he's been fired twice, and he he had this phenomenal uh, speech about speed in space, and it didn't work at Michigan. It didn't work at University of Miami, and it didn't work at another place he was at. So, you know, there's guys that are good on the chalkboard, and they're not so good on the practice field. No, and that's where that's where the foundation is. Now, what do you think it is that 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 kind of sells us on these on these uh, coaches? Because it's interesting. Because at times, and you find it in politics, you find it in any in corporate leadership. You find people who can talk their way up the up the ladder. Yep. And then when push comes to shove, they you know, especially if you have an external environment, the economy's bad, or you have some political issue where things just fall apart. What yeah. is it about, um, what do you think it is that these coaches have that they can can use um, people and manipulate the situation to get into those positions? What 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 is it? They're, they're not afraid to fail. They're not afraid of being judged by other people. They, they have a lot of confidence in their system. I have a lot of confidence in teaching the 5-2 angle slant defense. You can criticize me. You can tell me that's a that not a good defense. I'll disagree with you, and I'll prove it by using it every place I go and knowing how to how to uh, apply it to any any you know game situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other other guys that they want to change from week to week. They want to do you know show show everybody how much they know, and it, and it just doesn't work. Now, what do you think the, the the bullshitter coaches do? I mean, what is it that? How do they seduce us? Yeah, that, that's. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, um, buzzwords. It's an, it's an education too. I've I've worked for principals that know all the buzzwords. They don't know how to apply the buzzwords. They don't know how to treat people. But they there's coaches. That, uh, I worked for a guy at Michigan Tech. The head coach was from Hawaii. He coached at this school called St. Louis High School, all boys school, very successful. Man, that guy could just awe you, showing you his passing plays. We had a million passing plays. We led the country in Division II passing attempts and completions, and we were one and eight. We but, weren't successful. Yeah, it looked good when he did it, but you only did yes. it every now and then, so who cares? Yeah, who cares? Yeah, and... and, and the one game we won was in a driving rainstorm, and he, and you know, God took care of us, and, and, and Mother Nature made it run the ball. We won. Yeah. <laughs> Which we should have been doing all the whole season, but they, they, they kind of awe you with their, with their um, uh, buzzwords, their chalkboards, their, um, uh, yeah, they, they act real cocky, and cocky is so annoying to me. I, I like the confident, uh, and you can tell who is who is really, you know, good at something without listening to their, you know, words. I mean, you could just if you're watching them play yeah. or you scouted them, and they say, man, they really do that well. And I know um, Dearborn Fortson for years in the '70s were winning state championships with a coach named Charlie Justice, and I, and everybody would say, you know what he's going to do? You can't stop it. You know, he, he just, and the kids, to that point, they had confidence in what he called, what plays he called, because they they may have had five basic plays, but they were so confident in them on offense that they that they knew they were going to gain yardage, and then the one time you don't think they're going to pass, they have a play-action pass off of that. So it's simple, but it's how you apply it under pressure. Mm-hmm. So how, the, how those coaches handle adversity and a lot of the know-it-alls on the chalkboard, on the field, under the lights, can't handle adversity. What, what, what's interesting about uh, coaching versus other forms of leadership is that the re- the results speak for themselves. And yeah. so, 
you know, you can have, I, I, I can think of a number of different leaders, um, either CEOs or politicians who get into positions of power and they can kind of bullshit their way through a whole yeah. career. Yes. And, and they always figure out a way to smooth things over. But with their coaching, you know, if you're, if you're, it's a losing season, you can't really talk your way out of that. No. You can for maybe two seasons. Mm-hmm. The third season, and nobody's going to buy it. Yeah, and you're done. You're out. Yeah, yeah. I was hired for two different jobs. The one in Florida, a booster club hired me. The principal and AD had hired the first three coaches in five years, and it didn't work out. And the booster club said, we're hiring the next guy. And it, it, it worked out for me to get a job, but the AD and the principal kind of resented me because they didn't. Yeah, I wasn't their guy. You didn't I have actually, their brand of, of coaching? I didn't suck up to them. I was going to do what I was going to do, and the booster club members were guys, construction workers, uh, building homes and, you know, uh, roofers, and they liked what I said. And they said, well, well, let's hire Dave. And we liked the last guy that they hired, but the proof's in the pudding. If Dave says what he's telling us, we're, he, he's gonna, he's, we're gonna be all right. And I don't know any other way than what I told them. So I stuck to that. And of course, at the end of the year, they were thrilled that we were five and five and everybody's coming back and we were gonna be better the next year. The principal and AD, uh, the, you know, I, I listened to him out of respect, but I really didn't pay attention to him because the AD was one of the coaches that failed. Mm-hmm. I, I really didn't want to listen to anything he said but I was like 34 years old then and I was I was polite respectful but I knew what I did was going to work if as long as I didn't get off track now you you mentioned that how the boosters were able to come in and they were able to kind of uh steer things a little bit differently versus the principal and the AD kind of the inside players right um do you think that and now I'm talking elite level, I'm talking professional, that on that sometimes the people with the money can steer things too much? Because I'm yes. I'm thinking I'm thinking of uh, uh, soccer now, you know, a lot of these big players are going to the Middle East. I know that the live tournament, there's a lot of different there's there's a lot of money coming into sports and it seems that they're kind of getting off track a touch. Well, what do you think of the NIL in college? I think that's, I, I, I'm interested in watching that. I mean, I, I work at a golf course on Monday nights in Ann Arbor, mm-hmm. and a couple of Michigan players come there and golf. And the owner of the club said, hey, I'll give you free golf if you just post, hey, I played at Stonebridge, put it on your thing, your Facebook or whatever, and it was a, it was a, it's a great course, and I'll give you free golf. And the guy looked, the, the young guy looked at him and said, ah, if you pay me, I'll, play, I'll do that. I mean, they're, they're now, they're, they're pseudo-professionals now, and they'd rather be paid than give this guy um, any, any kind of time on their Facebook page because I, I apparently, and I don't understand all this, they get paid by the number of hits on their mm-hmm. Facebook. And, and I don't, I, I, that's a big, that's a change for the worse, I think. Well, it takes away a little bit of the nature of sport. I mean, w- we want to live in an ideal world where sport is pure and, you know, it's not all about the money and you're not going to throw a game. But unfortunately, I think that it's moving into this other realm where if we're not careful, it'll be only about the money. Yeah. Right? Um, yes. I think Formula One is a great example where where... I would love to watch Formula One and enjoy it, but when I see these multi-million dollar cars just wrecked, and it's just, it's a playground for the elite. It doesn't feel like I'm welcome there. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. I I agree. I agree. I I, I just, I don't don't understand the contracts money that I'm seeing, and I, I, um, I don't... You know the guy, the coaches at Michigan in 1970s <clears throat> were making twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars, 
and they were winning Big Ten championships. And these guys, the lowest paid coach on the staff, and they have 10 or 11 of them now, is $250,000. That's the lowest paid guy on the on the staff. And I, I just, I, I'm sour about that because they're ruining the game I love. What? I think, I think another thing, Jason, about weight training programs, and I got this from a, an ex-Michigan coach, that the weight training is ruining kids and causing all the injuries. Their body can't take that much. When they get so strong and you see running backs making a cut and not get hit and go down, mm-hmm. why is that? Why is that? Now, do you, do you think that the money coming into it, uh, the players are starting to be treated more like machines? Hey, yes. you're, buying me a, you're buying me a championship. I don't care about your knee or... No, yes, I agree. Yes, I do. And I think the mentality of some of the kids coming from uh, programs from big cities, if I... They, I used to recruit and I'd say, where's... Uh, Where's Alfred? I want to talk to Alfred. He's in the weight room. This was at the beginning of practice. I said he was there yesterday. What's he doing there today? Well, Alfred says if, if I get stronger lifting weights, I'll do it every day. Well, that's not how it works, you know. you got to give your body a chance to rest, recuperate. And so he got burnt out. Oh, yeah. Or injured, right? Yep. Yep. So what happens, though, if you take all the money out? Right, and we just say, you know, it's just it's just for the love of sport. Do you think that we would still hold sports as dearly as we do, or do you think money very much buys us in? No, I think the community pride. I'm thinking high school community pride would come back into play because they're playing with the same guys they played with in seventh and eighth grade, and ninth grade, and the pride's back in. The parents are more involved. You know. The, the high school game here, we got state championship football team, and we got a band that's spectacular, 230 kids in a band. And at halftime after the band show is over, most of the stands are empty because they came here to see the band. They're proud of the band. Wow. And they don't get paid, and they're not necessarily one or two of them will go on and play in college. But that, it's, it's, it's fun. It's part of the culture is part of the environment of why we like sports on Friday night in high school and, and, and I think that pride would come back if the money went away and the, and the coaches wouldn't be you know acting like the high school coaches wouldn't be acting like college coaches uh, recruiting players from you know 23 miles away yeah from the town. it's just not yeah I think it, I think it come back in a good way now, can you think of a sport where they, because what I'm getting from you is that sports hold uh, kind of community together, kind of the Olympic ideal of sport. And I would agree with that. I, I, you know, there's something about watching the World Cup or watching the Olympics where it, it touches a different level than watching a, a team play. Um, you know, a professional team, especially when the guys are, hey, he played for Miami last year and now he's playing for the Lakers and, you know, he's from Cleveland. You know, it's not your home team. Right. Do you think there is a sport, though, that's balanced the commercialization well and and hasn't lost that deeper culture? Nothing comes to mind right away. I, I think everybody, and even my last sport, golf, that I coach, the parents think they can get a college scholarship, college scholarship, and then some of them. Uh, one kid I had was a good golfer, par golfer. He moves, he goes to Arizona, and he's going to make the tour. He's going to qualify. He shoots par golf and doesn't make the cut. He finds out that par golf isn't good enough, and he came back home and and he's still in golf. He's working at a at a golf course and he's in, he, he has a passion for golf. So good for him. And he's still in it and he'll, he can make a living doing that. But his, his dream, he got a reality check when he went out. There's different parts of the country. If you go play golf in Vegas, California, um, Arizona, the golf is phenomenal. So 
you have to enjoy it for for um, if you love it, then make a career out of it, which you can do. But you don't have to be a professional golfer. You can work at the at the uh, the driving range and give lessons, and there's there's a spot for you there, especially if you have any kind of personal skills at all and like people. It, I like what you're saying with this idea that that you can still be in it. But you yes. don't necessarily have to be at the elite level. I mean, like you said, you know, sit at the driving range. You're still playing golf. You're still on the golf course. Yep. Uh, you're you're coaching a high school team. It, it's interesting how sp- sports uh, athletes, in a sense, have become these international celebrities, and and we've kind of forgotten that that the majority of people who play basketball play basketball in their front yard with a hoop or they play on the, you know, the the majority of people who engage in sport aren't these prototypical elite athletes. But interestingly enough, we, when we model ourselves on a specific athlete, we don't model ourselves on the biggest grouping of, you know, the kids throwing the ball around and having fun. Right. And, and the long term, benefits of having fun playing any sport is health you're healthier you're more confident i mean i play with golfers all the time that just have a good time and you like being around them mm-hmm. i want to be that i want to be that guy i don't I, I don't care what i shoot and consequently not now but you know last 15 years i could beat most of the guys i played with but that's not what I went out there to do. I went out there and played with guys I was having fun with, and we could we could uh, not trash talk, but go back and forth. Mm-hmm. And it was, there's a lot of uh, healthy aspects to good banter and camaraderie and, and and enjoying yourself. I mean, you have a good laugh when a guy misses a putt by a lot, and you say, "What happened? Did your did your, did your uh, contact?" I said, "Your contact fall out." <laughs> You yeah. missed that by a lot. You yeah. missed that by a lot. Everybody had a good laugh, and he didn't take it the wrong way. And he, and that's what you all feel good at the end. Same way I wanted to feel when I coached at the end of the season. And I had some coaches when I was AD, coach freshman basketball, never won a game in girls, and the girls loved the coach. And they, I'm sure they still talk to her 20 years later mm-hmm. because that coach valued them made them feel important and didn't criticize them at all. Just kept moving forward. We're getting better. We're, we're, you know, and I, I, I'd look at it and go, well, you are getting better, but you're still losing a lot by a lot. But, <laughs> she, but they didn't miss practice. They came to practice. They, that, that's a success. Oh yeah. That's a successful coach. Yeah. I think that, that you made a really good point that, the point, you know, going out and having fun, it goes back to health and you're much healthier. Yes. And I think that, unfortunately, from my perspective, that is much, much more limited than yours. I mean, I played high school sports and I, I rode briefly in college. Um, but it seems that sports have earned this bad reputation, right? Of, oh, the school only focuses on sports. They don't focus yes. on all these other things. And I would argue that... that that reputation has been earned by the focus on winning, going pro, making money. And yep. if sports got back to the fundamentals of you're out there having fun, it makes you well-rounded, you know, we might not have these great ESPN top tens, these crazy plays, but right. sports would exist in a different place in society. And I don't yes. think that it would be... I don't think it would be as antagonistic as it is among a lot of um, educators or, or, or people in the community. I think that people would see the value in sports. 20, 20 years ago, I knew the Iowa defensive coordinator. His name was Norm Parker. And a friend of mine that I coached with went out to Iowa to watch a game. We came out of that game. It was Michigan played there. And we came home and said, those people love their team. The fans loved the team. The coaches were having a good time. They had realistic expectations. Which, and I used to say, you could you you going there and you're going to try to win every game. 
you're probably not going to win every game, but you're going to try to win every game. Mm-hmm. And some people kind of took offense to that. Why would you say that? You're putting a negative thought. No, I'm putting a realistic thought in their head. But that doesn't mean they won't try their best. I've trained them. They're going to do their best they can do. But I'm, I'm giving them a, a realistic mindset that it, did you play your best? Then if you look in the mirror afterward, you played your best. Nothing wrong with that. We came up a little short. No problem. We're going to get it next time. We're going to improve. And I'm positive it's next Monday of practice. Yep. And, and that's, that's Iowa's whole football program was like that. And Kurt Ferentz was the coach then. He still is now. And I, But now everything gets all mucky, murky, because of all the other outside influences. Now Iowa's got to deal with gambling. Now he's got to deal with NIL. And, you know, Kurt Ferentz hasn't changed, but he's dealing with all these other things, you know. He's still a coach with realistic expectations, and the, and the fans and the school love him, and they, they do their community services, which is very important, which all, most all, all of them do. But, you know, they seem to do it with more heart, with more passion than some of the other uh, programs you see. They'll do it because they're told they got to do it so many community service hours or so many hospital children's hospital visits or whatever. No, these guys are doing it. And they, in Michigan State and Tom Izzo, I'm really fond of because I know one of his coach, one of his coaches for 20 years and I, 17 years he, he was in Belleville working with us. But it, it's just they're they're genuine people, mm-hmm. the ones that are successful. Well, I think I, we could talk for a long time. I want to bring you back. I really actually like the way that you um, think about coaching and the way you think about uh, human interaction, how to motivate people, how to get, how to achieve a goal. I think that there's a lot that we could actually talk about. I agree, Jason. So anytime. Right. Okay, perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you again so much. Uh, that was Coach Mac, uh, Dave McCarney. Um, had a great time talking to you, and I will follow up uh, 